Welcome to the New York City Bar Association podcast. In this episode, the ChatGPT case, Mata v. Avianca Incorporated, and AI in the courts, a closer look. Harut Manassian, Stuart Levy, and Richard Hong are members of the City Bar Working Group on Judicial Administration and Artificial Intelligence. After examining the disastrous way in which the lawyers in this case attempted to use artificial intelligence in federal court, the group breaks down where things went wrong. As practitioners, we need to be very careful about using new technology and know what it can do, as well as know what it cannot do, what the limitations are. When you're using new technology, know what you're using, check on it, and don't lie to the court about what you did. The discussion covers the sometimes dizzying array of possible uses for AI, and the uncertainty about where to draw new lines. Is it for ideation? Is it for citations? Is it for drafting a piece of text? You just type the beginning of a sentence in and see how ChatGPT finishes it for you. There's so many different potential use cases that are evolving that I think when we talk about using AI, air quotes, we really got to drill down a little bit what we even mean by that. We also get into how courts are beginning to make rules for AI usage and what to expect from them in the future. I'm distinguishing between cautioning lawyers when using it versus if you use it, you have to tell me. Because we just don't do that for other things. We don't say, did Richard walk down the hall and ask one of his partners, like, I'm struggling with this issue, you have any good ideas? No court says, did you ask anyone for help talking through an issue? Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Harut Manassian. My name is Harut Manassian. I'm co-chair of the New York City Bar Association's Working Group on Judicial Administration and Artificial Intelligence, also known as JAAI. I'm a judicial law clerk for a Westchester County Commercial Division judge and a forthcoming judicial law clerk for a federal judge in Texas. I'm joined today with two JAAI members to discuss AI in the courts through the lens of a highly publicized case. Hey, everybody. Stu Levy. I'm a partner in the IP and tech transactions group in Skadden Arps in New York, and have been doing a lot of work in AI over the last period of time. Hi, I'm Richard Hong, and I'm a partner at Morrison Cohen uh, LLP in New York. I'm also a, the chair of the Federal Courts Committee of the City Bar, and I'm happy to join. Before we start a discussion, just some background about the working group. This working group is a committee between the City Bar's Council on Judicial Administration and the Task Force on Digital Technologies. It was established in May 2023 to address current and potential issues related to AI technology use within the New York State Judiciary. The working group is preparing a report with specific recommendations for the state judiciary. And our members include judicial personnel, including a judge, technology experts, and law firm partners. Jerome Walker who is co-chair of the Task Force on Digital Technologies, a member of the City Bar's Compliance Committee, and a partner at Jerome Walker PLC, is also a co-chair. So the case today that we'll be discussing is Mata v. Avianca, which was in the news recently. It's a U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York case. Stu, could you talk about what happened in that case and why it's in the news? Sure, and how we got to now. So here's the background of the case, and you'll hear that parts of the background are only sort of AI-adjacent issues, but when Richard's going to talk in a few minutes about Judge Castell's ruling in that case is related to sanctioning the lawyers involved, you'll understand why some of the, again, what I'm calling AI-adjacent facts are important as well. So back in February 2022, 
Robert Mata or Mata sues Avianca Airlines in New York State Court and says he was injured when a metal serving cart hits his left knee during an international flight. Avianca removes the action to federal court, and they say there's a federal jurisdiction question under the Montreal Convention, which deals with, in part, air travel. The reason they, Avianca did this is they then proceed to argue that Mata's claims are time-barred under the Montreal Convention. So Mata is represented by a firm, Dow, Levidow, and Obermann, and particularly by lawyer Steve Schwartz there. Schwartz had represented him in the state court proceeding. He was not admitted to federal court, didn't really have experience with the Montreal Convention or with federal bankruptcy law. And he has his partner, Peter Loduca, sign all the papers and appear, but Schwartz is doing all the work in the background. As you'll hear, that's amongst the the important sort of AI-adjacent facts. So here's what unfolds. So Avianca files a motion to dismiss. They argue this is time-barred on the Montreal Convention. Leduca opposes. Again, remember, this is Schwartz drafting the papers, but Leduca's is the name on it. And he says Avianca's claim is told, the statute of limitations is told because of an Avianca bankruptcy and under the Montreal Convention, bankruptcy filings told the statute of limitations. A couple of weeks later, Avianca files a reply and says, they have their arguments and says, but your honor, we can't find a lot of the cases that are cited in, in the brief that was filed by Mata's lawyers. Apparently, the court must have looked at it as well, or the court's office, because the court comes to the same conclusion and issues an order telling Leduca to provide copies of the cases that he has cited. Leduca asked for a two-week extension, saying he's on vacation. Truth be told, he wasn't on vacation. Schwartz was. Again, that's all relevant facts to this decision. Court gives them the two weeks. And what they respond with is not the full cases, but excerpts of the cases. And they argue that the online database they use, they don't say what that online database was, did not include full opinions, um, only had excerpts. One of the cases is not published that they cited, but, you know, here are the excerpts. So what happened? So as we all now know, and the reason we're talking about this case on this podcast is Schwartz went on to chat GPT to find cases that support his arguments. Actually, unfortunately, a little bit even worse than that. So Schwartz first types in, because the prompts are in, we know in the opinion now, relating to the sanctions decision. So Schwartz first says to ChatGPT, argue that the statute of limitations is told by bankruptcy of defendants pursuant to Montreal Convention. ChatGPT dutifully will, in many cases, unfortunately, tell you what you want to hear, and says, in fact, the statute of limitations is told for bankruptcy filing. Schwartz then goes on to ask ChatGPT, show me specific holdings in federal cases where the statute of limitations was told due to bankruptcy of an airline. Show me more cases. Give me some cases where the Montreal Convention allowed tolling of the statute of limitations due to bankruptcy. And so the proposition to begin with that there's a tolling is not true. And unfortunately for Schwartz and Leduca, ChatGPT dutifully creates cases out of whole cloth, which arguably sound legitimate. We'll get to how legitimate they sounded in a second, but none of which, or many of which, don't even exist. It gets worse, unfortunately, for the Schwartz and Leduca firm. Schwartz then submits in the chat GPT when he sees what Avianca is arguing and says, gives a couple of the names of the case and says, is this a real case? Are the other cases you provided fake? ChatGPT responds and says it supplied real authorities. They can be found in Westlaw 
LexisNexis and The Federal Reporter. So what we learned subsequently is Schwartz says, look, how do we even get down this road? Schwartz says, look, we don't have Lexis or Westlaw accounts at our firm. We have something called FastCase. FastCase has very limited access to federal court decisions. So I heard about this thing called ChatGPT, kind of thought it was a search engine, thought it was a good way of finding cases, had no idea at all that the possibility of ChatGPT fabricating cases was even a thing. I assume these cases were out there in the world. They were either unpublished opinions or you could find them if you looked hard enough. But I thought they sounded authentic and that they were real cases. Some of the, just to give you some examples of how this went south. So none of these cases existed. ChatGPT, which is really just a predictive engine, which just predicts the next word in a sentence based on the words that came before it through a complicated mathematical algorithm, was very good at recreating things that, that sound legitimate. In one of the decisions, I'll just touch on a couple of them. The I would say I don't know how to pronounce it, but there is no real pronunciation because it's not a real case. The Varghese decision, this is from Judge Castell's decision. He says, shows stylistic and reasoning flaws that do not generally appear in decisions issued by a U.S. Court of Appeals. Its legal analysis is gibberish. The summary of the case procedural history borders on nonsensical. That case, in turn, cites other cases that don't exist. It lists Judge Higginbotham. As one of the judges on this case, it's an 11th Circuit case. Judge Higginbotham, as many people know, is a Fifth Circuit judge. He cites a case, Miller, in their brief, which refers to United Airlines bankruptcy that didn't even happen, identifies the lawyer representing the client. That lawyer does not even work at that law firm in that case. It cites a case called Peterson. Peterson, incredibly, in the excerpt he included, cites its own case as precedent for the conclusion that case is coming to. So if you pause for a second, you might think, wait, how could a case be citing its own case as the precedent on which it's relying to come to its conclusion? So that's sort of the factual background. As you can tell, some of it are AI-specific issues. Some of it is just sort of the conduct of Schwartz and LaDuca in this case. So Richard, why don't maybe I'll turn it over to you to walk through how Judge Castell deals with that fact pattern. So when this case got publicized, and it was on the New York Times as well, I think a lot of folks expected Judge Castell, after he held it, sort of an AI-centric decision. It turns out that if you were looking for some sort of revelation about how we should use AI, we didn't get that from Judge Castell's opinion of June 22nd, 2023. What he focused on, and I'll get to some specifics, is sort of a high-level violations of Rule 11, which is the rule in federal court about submission of frivolous arguments and bad faith conduct relating to submissions to the court. And what we saw at the high level is basically, and I hate to say this about lawyers, but old-fashioned bad lawyering more than AI. And that's what Stu was talking about when he was saying sort of incident or it was close to AI issues. But really, this case turned on what the court considers bad faith conduct in submitting fake cases and then double downing, basically saying that what they did was appropriate until they got to the court for the hearing and then they fessed up. So Judge Castell, who sits in Southern District, New York, and he's a well-known judge, held a hearing on June 8th and had the lawyers testify and found out what had happened was that actually is that there was no basic inquiry, forget about the reasonable inquiry required under Rule 11, there was no basic inquiry about whether or not these cases really did exist 
or was reasonable to cite. As Stu mentioned, the law firm had limited resources, it appears, and did not really do the required due diligence that any lawyer practicing in federal court, for that matter, in state courts would know about. And the bottom line was that the judge found that sort of insisting, and this was the key issue, what the judge saw, not so much of the initial mistakes, although they were significant, but the fact that once the court and the opposition brought this issue to center in the front, the lawyers continued to insist that what they did was okay, and in fact, that they had done an appropriate search on that. And what the court found was that there was a bad faith on the two two lawyers that Stu mentioned, as well as a law firm being sanctioned, and each of the lawyers were charged were five thousand uh, dollars as a sort of a specific deterrence penalty, so to speak, against the two lawyers. The court found that, and I'll read from one of the uh, paragraphs in the a judge's written opinion. It says that the respondents, meaning the two lawyers, advocated for fake cases and legal arguments contained in the affirmation in opposition after being informed by their adversaries' submission that their citations were non-existent and could not be found. Mr. Schwartz understood that the court had not been able to locate the fake cases. Mr. LaDuca, the only attorney of record, consciously avoided learning the facts by neither reading the Albianco submission when received, nor after receiving the court's orders of April 11th and April 12th. The violation that the court found to be more specific is a violation of Federal Rules of Civil Procedure 11b2. And 11b2 prohibits an existing case law that unambiguously forecloses a legal argument. You cannot uh, cite that. You cannot submit that to the court. And again, arguments and authorities that are clearly lacking in foundation. These are court's words. It violates Rule 11b2. And the court also suggested there was an abuse of judicial system here. So that, in essence, is what the court held. The court found that subjective bad faith by the two lawyers and the law firm was also cited. So it seems like really it's not AI use that was problematic. It's a failure of proper oversight that really is the start of this. Now, would you say that in this year, in 2023, given the technology that we have with AI, do you think that the duty of oversight, if you will, for lawyers is greater in an AI context than a non-AI context, or would you say it's about equal? So, Samuel, I'll lead off. So it's a good question. Look, I think it, it comes down to what are we comparing it to? I think if you're comparing it to doing searches on Westlaw or Lexis, you dramatically need to be more careful. If you're comparing it to searches on Google, um, you type something in and you get some website you've sort of never seen before, and it's got some article by someone about some principle of law, your obligation to look at whether that's legitimate or not, who wrote it. Again, same thing like here. Is that actually a case or is it someone just positing something? I think it should exist equally there as well. I think you could say that on Google or a search engine, it's a little bit easier to tell whether 
2023, something's legit or not. There are a lot of websites, people, if you're a practicing lawyer, you're familiar with, and could be something from a law firm, could be something from another aggregator that you're familiar with. And so you've come to trust. You're probably a little more circumspect of something you've never heard of. But still, I think there should be that big a delta between just using anything that's something not official, whether it's AI generated or not. AI, I think the stakes are much higher that you're getting something that might not be right and you have to be careful. But I would argue you've got to be careful with anything you're using, as I said, that's not something fairly official. I agree with Stu on that. I think that you do, I mean, the first rule that Judge Castell really talks about is duty of reasonable inquiry under Rule 11. And and that applies anywhere, whether it's AI or anything else. But I think I will say this, that since AI is, as we talk here in July of 2023, still, and that things can change, I think that when you're using a new and developing technology, I do think that you need to be more careful. So while the federal rules say the duties are the same, and Judge Castell said that as much, I think as practitioners, we need to be very careful about using new technology and know what it can do as well as know what it cannot do, what the limitations are. So I would say that that's something that all practitioners can take from this opinion, from this decision that, hey, when you're using new technology, know what you're using, check on it, and don't lie to the court about what you did. Yeah, and Harun, I think also what's really interesting is, and I know we'll talk about this in a few minutes, is that I think it's a little bit too easy sometimes to generalize you know, what we mean by use of AI. And this is almost a classic cliched example of bad facts, maybe not making bad law, but you know, creating bad reactions to something, because there's a number of different ways you could use this tool, and Schwartz and Leduca, or maybe just Schwartz, used it in the worst case scenario situation. But you know, what if Schwartz was stuck, let's say, on this statute of limitations issue on the module convention and typed in, you know, what are creative arguments to get around the statute of limitations bar to the Montreal Convention? And chat GPT generates some interesting ideas, you know, who knows where it pulled it from. And Schwartz doesn't just rely on that, but Schwartz looks at the four things that pops up and thinks, oh, number three is something I hadn't thought of. That's interesting. Let me go do some research on Lexus, Wesley, whatever it is, and try to pull some cases and see if that's an argument I can now develop. I would have never thought of that angle on my own, but that's an interesting angle. And Schwartz finds actual cases that support a proposition he might not have ever thought of. I think it's hard-pressed to say that Schwartz did anything wrong in a scenario like that. So I think how you use it, is it for ideation, like generating ideas and thoughts and things like that? Is it for citations? Is it for drafting a piece of text where you're struggling with how to phrase something and you just type the beginning of a sentence in and see how ChatGPT finishes it for you? There's so many different potential use cases that are evolving I think when we talk about using AI, air quotes, we really got to drill down a little bit what we even mean by that. Uh, Stu, I think that's an important point to make. If And as I understand your point, if you're using AI to get inspiration, get thought-provoking ideas that you may not have thought through because the, the AI is very iterative, it can kind of learn from its own mistakes and own reviews a lot faster than we can ever do as humans, I think that's okay. I think where the where I see problems is when you do whole scale borrowing or you're you really plagiarizing here various things and don't cite to it and don't reveal to the court that you're using AI. I think that's where you have some problems and 
potential issues like the the what the court dealt with in the Mata case. Yeah, no, I agree. I, th- I think it's I think the drafting thing is really is really the most interesting issue maybe that's going to I think emerge in the coming weeks and months and maybe even years because to me the the case citation getting ideas for arguments things like that you can sort of see the line between look I just use it for some ideas from inspiration but then I did my good old fashioned burning the midnight oil research and found cases and law review articles and whatever I also might cite to to establish my proposition but since about the drafting piece it's from the copyright office perspective, things that you generate uh, through AI, something like ChatGPT, is not copyrightable, right? Their view is just putting in a prompt, getting text back. The generated text does not rise to the level of the kind of human input you need to copyright the end result. So it's interesting is you'd be putting something in a brief that maybe isn't really plagiarism, right? Copyright obviously is not even copyrightable. You're sort of copying from a machine. And the interesting question is, and I think it's a really interesting question, is where's the line? But it's a little bit like in the legal research point. I'm having, I'm struggling to find like a couple of words. I just can't get it. Put in a sense, chat GBT spits out the words. I was like, right, that's the phrase I was looking for. I use that phrase. Does anyone care? Probably not. And then, Richard, I think to your point, I say, write me a preliminary injunction brief on a, in a, trademark case and it gives me seven pages of text and I cut and paste that and play around with it a little bit, do we feel that I've crossed some line there that just doesn't feel right to any of us? I suppose technically it's not someone else's work, so they don't have a proprietary interest, but it troubles me that someone would put in a sentence or two, get information and information they think is usable and uses it in whole scale without citing. It's a source. And lawyers cite to a source, sort of identify the source of it. And I think that's what Judge Castell was in part going at. So it troubles me that that potentially there's no beyond the Rule 11 violations, I suppose, or some other violation from the court that there may be no other downside to potential abuse of this technology. I think there's, to Stu's point about the nuance of AI use, definitely that's going to be one of the big challenges when it comes to how courts are going to regulate AI. So since the Mata case was in the news, but before Judge Castell's holding, before his sanctions decision, a few courts have issued AI certification rules. And these rules are really standing orders of the of the judge. And I'll just read a few. In the Northern District of Texas, Judge Starr he requires counsel to attest that, quote, either that no portion of any filing will be drafted by generative AI or that any language drafted by generative AI will be checked for accuracy using print reporters or traditional legal databases by a human being. However, any party believing a platform has the requisite accuracy and reliability for legal briefing may move for leave and explain why. In this instance, this AI certification Judge Starr reasons that the purpose of it is because AI hallucinates. It makes things up. As we saw in the Matter case, it was making up decisions. And AI also has a bias. It has a bias from its creators that is not necessarily consistent with the obligations to the public and the law. That was Judge Starr's reasoning for why he's having this AI certification. Now, compare that with Judge Vaden of the U.S. Court of International Trade. He issued an AI certification requirement. The reasoning behind it 
is because AI, quote, programs challenge the court's ability to protect confidential information and business proprietary information from unauthorized, unquote, access. So these are at least two different motivations for having these AI certifications. And other judges have also followed suit. In fact, one judge, a federal judge in the Northern District of Illinois, Judge Fuentes, has a more expansive certification. His certification states that any party using such a tool to conduct legal research or, quote, to draft documents for filing with the court must disclose in the filing that AI was used with the disclosure, including the specific AI tool and the manner in which it was used, unquote. What do you all think about these AI certifications? I will say, I think right now in 2023, given the advance of AI technology, I think it makes sense. Although I think that going down the line in the future, it may be over-inclusive. What do you guys think? I think that's right, Harun. I I think judges are getting it, in my view. I think Judge Fuentes in Northern District of Illinois has the right idea. He may be going on a little bit too expansive about exactly how it was used. I wonder whether or not it impinges on the attorney work product doctrine and other potential privilege issues on that. But I think the courts are doing it right by requiring, at least in my view, a sort of a certification similar to Rule 11, what I would call super Rule 11 requirement relating to AI assistance. Stu? The orders from the courts trouble me a little bit. I think Judge Vaden at the U.S. Court of International Trade which has sort of a unique take, as you were saying, I think he maybe has it right. And it's an interesting point, which is that you need to keep in mind that what you type into these programs, and look, we say this to clients, legal briefing aside, don't type your marketing material, your confidential marketing material into chat GPT, because that's not protected. And even if you convince yourself, maybe wrongly, that, well, is anyone really going to look at my prompt? Is it really going to end up anywhere? You definitely have weakened your argument that's confidential information of yours if you so freely put it into this prompt for ChatGPT. So I very much take Judge Vaden's point. I mean, one could argue, why is the court not saying that for search engines like Google being whatever as well? In other words, why isn't the same risk there that I, you know, type something into Google that and I've now just typed in confidential information about my client because I was out there searching for something? And I take the point that AI, you might not think about it, you might not realize the risk, you might, all those things are there, but your searches into any of these search engines present the same issues, arguably. So I feel like we're singling out AI a little bit, but I get it. The other ones, I think, again, trouble me because I feel like it's one thing for a court to say, be very careful when you're using AI, do not rely on it check your work. But if you want to use that for initial legal research, again, you know, using my example from before, because maybe it gives you some ideas, maybe you think there's something, a creative, interesting angle there. As long as you're verifying it, being required to tell the court, almost like, here's where my idea came from, you know, does feel unfair, I think, to lawyers practicing who might want to use this technology. And I do think a little bit unfairly singles out AI. So again, I'm distinguishing between cautioning lawyers when using it and like almost check your work or double check your work versus if you use it, you have to tell me. 
because we just don't do that for other things. We don't say, did Richard walk down the hall and ask one of his partners, like, I'm struggling with this issue. You have any good ideas? Someone is not on the briefs, whatever. And they say, give him a great idea or same thing in my firm. No court says, did you ask anyone for help talking through an issue or maybe even ask a lawyer at a different firm and say, hey, have you ever come across this issue? Have you seen any interesting arguments, right? We don't make people disclose that. And again, seems interesting to me that for AI, we're requiring you to disclose that. Hey, Stu, I think in my mind, the distinction is that when you go down across the hallway and talk to your partners and discuss a matter, which we frequently would do, we're talking to a human being. AI is technology. And the Rule 11 requires that you have lawyers who are involved in it basically sign and attest to the good faithness of, of the arguments, the reasonableness of the arguments on it. And with AI being so undeveloped so far. I mean, it's developed to some extent, but it still has a lot ways to go. I, the requirement that you certify that doesn't trouble me as much. Just no, telling that you used AI to do your work and that you check the AI's reliability and accuracy, I'm not sure that's asking for too much in my view. Well, again, checking the, that's what I'm saying, checking reliability and authenticity and reminding lawyers they need to do that, cautioning them, warning them, even saying you could be sanctioned if you don't do that all seems fine to me. It's the idea that I'd have to file a disclosure statement that I did it. But to me, the analogy to going down the hall, even though it's a human, Richard, again, you or someone in our firm went down the hall and said to someone, is, the, is X an argument? And that other lawyer were to say, no court has ever held X. And you put in your brief, your honor, no court has, in the second circuit has ever held X. So you didn't go to check that. But, you know, your lawyer down the hall told you that and you just assumed that's right. I can see you getting in just as much hot water. If it turns out, no, that lawyer forgot that last year the Second Circuit did hold X and he gets slammed for making a blanket statement that turns out not to be true. I think you have the same level of obligation, no matter what your source is, not to rely on sort of things you see here, human, human or not. It, it, it also does seem like these AI certifications suggest that courts are not prepared for that nuance for, of what AI use actually means. And, uh, I mean, there's a bunch of uh, potential AI uses. These AI certifications, I think, not only reinforce that the courts are not prepared for that nuance, but also it does seem to be basically a reaction to uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty right now with this technology, and that reaction may be proportional or not proportional to the risk, but it seems like that is a driving force, that, that fear of the unknown to some extent. I agree with Harun. I think that's right. We're dealing with AI. We hear about it every day, multiple times about what it can or cannot do or potentially, and I think the courts are concerned about the use of new technology in this space. Maybe in a year, it may be different. Maybe in five years, it will most likely, uh, it will be certainly different. Yeah, I think that's right. Harun, I think you said it well. I think it's a little bit of reactionary fear of the unknown, which is we're not prepared for this nuance. We don't want to start drawing lines and you just can't do it. I mean, going back, we don't have a lot out there today with any sort of regulator or law dealing with this issue, but the Copyright Office, I'm coming back to because one of the few cases where we have that. The Copyright Office has said that if you submit a copyright registration and part of it has been generated 
through AI, you need to disclose that was the case. So here's my graphic novel. There was actually a case involving a graphic novel in front of the copyright office. Here's my graphic novel. I wrote the whole novel myself by hand, but all the images you see there I generated with AI, you have to disclose that. But what a lot of people, the copyright bar have reacted to that rule from the copyright office is that, okay, but it's it can get much more subtle than that, right? Again, same thing, like we're talking about here. You can imagine that with any sort of copyrightable work, legal briefs aside, which is the copyright office is getting a very clear text written by human, graphics done by computer, easy to just put them in the two different buckets, but it's not clear where it's a piece of music and you used some AI piece for some portion of it or for some stems or for some beat or for some idea of a beat or whatever. What is it you need to disclose the copyright office? Is there a de minimis use where they are not going to care? All those issues are kind of uh, lurking out there and feel, some people feel the copyright office created this bright line. And there's a little bit, I think, that going on here with courts as well. It's not just the courts and the copyright. I mean, it, I used to work for the government. I mean, there are a lot of governmental regulatory agencies like the SEC that may be very concerned about this use. I think this is going to be a huge issue for lots of folks across the board regarding it. And I think the court is trying to have some control over potentially an uncontrollable situation. At this point, the court wants to put some fences around. Maybe it's not appropriate, but at least some fences around. And I think that's what we're seeing. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah I totally agree. It's And I, I know in some respect, we're singling out the courts, but that's by virtue of the nature of our work on the working group. What do you think is an alternative to AI certifications? So for instance, there's some talk that there are universities using AI detection tools to ensure that students are not using AI tools for writing assignments, et cetera. Do you think that is an alternative to AI certifications where a court would use this AI tool to fight AI in briefs and legal writing? It's interesting to see. It's a great question. I wonder how much courts care. In other words, if everything I've said in my brief is true accurate, supported by good case law, perfectly legitimate arguments for me to advance in the interest of my client, does the court care that I didn't write those two paragraphs or not? At the end of the day, does it really care? And I know care to the point that like we caught you. And I'm not, I don't know Richard, what you think. I wonder if the court does something like that. Again, assume everything I've said is accurate. There's not a hallucination issue. There's not any other issue. It's perfectly pristinely fine. But the truth is, I use an AI tool to generate it. Would a court look at what I've done the same way a university might look at a student who submitted an exam that way? Yeah, I, I think the idea that every chambers, every court judge's chambers would have an AI detector to go through <laughs> each filing sounds horrible to me. I'm <laughs> not sure that is the way to go. And the judges would like that idea of having some sort of a detector program that it has to run every pleading to. But I would think that the court would, like in the Mata case, if it's concerned about something, that it would issue an order to show cause, as it did there, and then try to figure things out on that. I think it's, quite frankly, that kind of AI issues can create what a lot of folks feared about Rule 11 when it came out, which is a gigantic increase of satellite litigation about whether AI was used, whether AI was improperly or properly used, and then it will just prolong and delay litigation. I think. That, I don't think the court should do that. 
Richard, let me, let me ask you a question uh, as, as a litigator in this group. Um, if you were to read a brief one day and say, wow, that is two excellent paragraphs with articulating a legal argument. That's a really crisply written. I really like the way they presented it. I'm going to remember this. Would you cut and paste that or would call you out or ask you present? Would a litigator feel comfortable a year later cutting and pasting that into their own brief and not citing to the other person's brief, but thinking, I really could not describe this point better than this other brief did filed in some other court. I'm just going to paste this into my brief. And again, I assume the cases are still all good and there's not been overturned. How would a litigator look at doing something like that? Well, I, look, I, maybe I'm talking about myself only, but I, I probably would feel a little bit uncomfortable with cutting and pasting without attribution to the source on that. So, but does that happen? I'm sure it happens. And I'm sure that, and we all learn from each other and some, you read something and it's beautifully written and you want to go use that. Sure. You use it from courts and I mean, judges do that too. So I think it's unavoidable, Stu, but on the other hand, I think that if you're going to use whole scale borrowing, you should quote it and you should cite it. Yeah. Yep, yep. No, that's a really good point. As soon as you Richard, you just said, and Haroon, is something you were saying earlier about sort of looking forward. I wonder if you get to a point where courts all of a sudden realize that they can clear their dockets faster if they say to the, their clerks, your permission to use, you know, you got to check it. You can't just rely on it for all the reasons we've been talking about. But if you can cut your drafting time down by 25% by running a first draft through some generative AI program, as long as you've checked everything, we're all good here in these chambers. I wonder if we get to a point where courts feel like there's a tool there for them to use as well. There are definitely opportunities for AI to be deployed in just drafting decisions. You could have an AI tool that uses, say, computer vision technology that reads documents and does it automatically. No need to spend time typing. As for legal citations, if it's not there already, it's probably going to come out soon where you have an AI tool that does it for you. And of course, I think it's fair to say we'll see AI within a few years, if not even sooner, that can pinpoint cases for you in a way that current technology cannot, in a level of detail and nuance that current technology cannot. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Is court going to certify when they're using AI to draft orders? <laughs> that's that's the very interesting. That. Uh, is there going to be like a footnote says that this order was generated or in, in part through the use of AI? I don't know. Look, I think Harut's point about using AI and how it could be tremendously helpful to cutting down, it is something that's going to be considered by folks in the very near future. And as the technology improves, some of the briefs written by AI may be better than what we can do. So what do we do then? Right. 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 I mean, yeah. I mean, what's inter- I will say what's interesting about the, the examples you were giving, and we took a look at them, is it does focus on legal research. Because I do think that one of the areas where you're going to see AI systems used more frequently and more quickly than replacing legal research is for doing sort of fact analysis, going through... 100,000 documents and finding certain connections or doing certain things like that. And there the court, at least so far, courts I don't think have said that you can't use AI to help analyze your case, build your case, look at documents, whatever it is. Now, whether you run risks of doing that or not is a whole separate issue. We often talk about the fact that is it malpractice to do that 
today, probably yes. The interesting question being, does it get to a point where it's malpractice not to have done that? Because that's what everybody does. And a client might say to you, how did you miss this key connection? Didn't you run it through some AI tool? And you say, well, I didn't. And they say, how did you possibly not do that? But interestingly, courts have not touched that yet. Have not said that you can't do that. It's really their focus, I think, a lot on the drafting and on the legal research, as we've been saying. Right. And those, yet again, it just shows the kind of universe of nuance when it comes to AI use. It's not just legal writing. It's not just legal research. It's discovery. It's decision making. It's case management, et cetera. Yep. Great points. Yeah. Richard, you mentioned something before about whether courts will maybe need to certified to the public that they've used AI in their decision-making. That's a very interesting hypothetical, and I'm afraid it may not be a hypothetical in several years. One of the challenges when it comes to AI use has to do with to what extent should humans be involved in the process. There's a plan for courts in Estonia to handle small claims cases, but the parties would make their submissions to an AI tool the AI tool would render a decision, and that decision would be appealed to a human being, to a human judge. What are your thoughts on, on a potential future like that, which, which is not just decision-making in terms of some human being in the loop, but this is in some ways really just autonomous, at least in the beginning? I got to tell you, it's a scary thought. I, for better or worse, <laughs> I still trust the old-fashioned human being as a judge. And someone wearing a robe, a black robe, who actually is physically wearing a black robe instead of some machine somewhere in that. I mean, I recognize, however, that we rely so much on automation and other technology that we're not even aware of today that it really makes our lives so much easier and makes our job so much easier. So I think it is unfortunately or fortunately inevitable, but it raises a host of issues that are that are interesting and thorny and difficult. I was just going to circle back about a model like that where you have an AI tool that's receiving submissions from parties and actually deciding a case and then it's appealed to a human. So you'd still have human review, it just wouldn't be in the front end. Yeah, I mean I think like with all these things, I like I'm with Richard on this. You can imagine we get to that place at some point, but I don't think that's in the short or maybe even medium term horizon. You need so much test data to validate how it's working that even if the technology got to a point where it was doable in the short to medium term, and again, I don't think short term, but even the medium term, I think you'd need, people would want to see sort of years of of precedent sample test decisions or doing things in parallel before people would start to really use that in any meaningful way. So one, one thing that I will add to Stu's point is, as I think about the technology, one of the issues that will come up, presumably, is bias issues. What kind of information are you feeding? The question is, how do we figure out this? I mean, is the judge completely unbiased? And what does that look like? The machine judge, the AI judge. How do you decide those issues? And I think this just, I don't know. I, I agree with Stu. This is not a short-term issue. I think this is at least a medium-term issue. But is it inevitable that we'll be using some sort of tool like this? to cut down on the court's docket with all the massive delays and congestion, I think it's inevitable. I just don't know what form it would look like. I'll just say one final thought. I mean, what's so interesting, and to Richard, to meet all of us, is that this is an issue that went from zero to 100, 
right? It's not like, well, people have been talking about this issue for years now, but you know, now we've thought this all through and sort of here we are. A lot of these are issues of first impression where the thinking is just developing around this and I think will will continue to evolve. Absolutely. I think that's right. I think, I, and maybe it may not evolve. It may actually move, as you said, zero to hundred, very fast speed. It will, re- it, and some people have said this, and I don't know, I completely buy into it, but it could revolutionize our practice, our profession. Yeah, agreed. And definitely our world. Thanks for the lively discussion. It was great to talk about it and just reinforces how there are so many open issues about how AI will be regulated and how AI will be deployed in our society. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.